What's up, y'all? Welcome to the Sports Medicine Broadcast, a podcast to promote and improve your practice as an athletic trainer. Today, Devin and Kyle are going to be discussing blood flow restriction in adolescence. This started from a Twitter conversation. Devin asked, hey, who's using BFR in a high school setting? Because that's where he currently is. And I said, hey, we just purchased one, which, you know, that's going to be part of the discussion today, but it hasn't come in because everything has been backordered this year, that kind of thing. Um, so I actually haven't been able to use it. But Kyle... Kimbrell has been working with Owens Recovery Science. He's in the Delphi, the the you know top of the line or the gold standard for blood flow restriction. And so he's got a lot of experience using that. And he, he said he was actually just on a podcast yesterday talking about blood flow restriction um, as well. So he's got lots of experience. And we're going to just kind of pick his brain and see what we need to do, what we need to put in place to make sure we're safe using this. Uh, and, of course, I'm going to test it out on myself before we ever put it on the athletes so just like I did with all the compact stuff I'll be kind of doing short little videos or whatever as I'm using it and testing it out I am of course your host Jeremy Jackson this is the sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash BFR in adolescence again sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash BFR in adolescence all right so I want to start off with blood flow restriction in Pretty much everyone knows what blood flow restriction is, but it's essentially using a tourniquet to reduce the nutrients that are flowing to the limb that you're working out so you can get a greater um, ischemic effect for, uh, for the muscle. So you're doing a really heavy workload with a really light uh, weight or something like that. So, Kyle, why don't you give us a little clearer definition there? And then we'll go from there. Sure. Yeah. No, that was that was fine. Um, I think <clears throat> the easiest way to describe BFR is to liken it in some ways to how a hybrid car works. Um, I think most of us really kind of understand that there are a couple different ways to produce energy for a cell, if you will. So you have aerobic metabolism and you have anaerobic metabolism. We all kind of learned that in school. It's somewhat familiar to us. Um, when we lift big, heavy weights, we generally are going at least to try to use aerobic metabolism initially to produce enough force to move that weight. But, you know, very quickly, you know, the brain kind of recognizes, Hey, you're not doing what we want you to do. And so what we begin to do is recruit, um, larger and larger motor units and those motor units generally are going to have to use more of an anaerobic pathway to produce enough energy quick enough to produce the force to, to accomplish the task that we're basically telling that muscle to do. So um, when it comes to BFR, essentially we're working with weights that your body is going to be able to use type one fibers, aerobic metabolism to produce enough force to execute the task. But when we restrict your blood flow, what we do is we, we basically limit your ability to produce energy via aerobic metabolism. And so gradually over time, you get more and more anaerobic. And so essentially, much like a hybrid car, when it runs out of battery, it can just start using gas. We're trying to run you out of oxygen and then over time run you out of gas. And if we can induce a bunch of fatigue in that manner, it looks like muscle will respond in a fashion as though it's recognizing, wow, I'm not really, I'm not good enough to do what this person is requiring of me. And the way I can get better is I can add a bit of size. I can get a bit stronger. 
Um, and as long as we create some failure, whether it be mechanically by disrupting that fiber or through a substantial amount of fatigue, looks like we can generate the enough signals to tell that muscle to grow and get bigger. And so that's essentially what we're doing. Of course that, you know, something like that fits fantastic into a rehab type setting because quite often you are dealing with the situation where too much load could be problematic for the healing tissue. Um, you may have a substantial amount of pain that limits someone's ability to push the amount of weight that they really need to push to get better. Um, and those are probably kind of the two sort of primary areas that we really, we really use it in and where at least physical therapists, for example, are using it in, in clinic type settings. Um, and certainly where athletic trainers would as well. So one of the kind of the key points, I guess, in, in our Twitter conversation was protocols and things we would put in place so with bfr contraindications things reasons situations we would not use bfr yeah i, I mean things especially that would specifically pertain to you guys' setting would be things like open wounds that sort of deal um you're obviously not going to do it in that scenarios those are that's kind of like the low hanging fruit easy decision um if you i mean I can't, you're not going to deal with the stuff I deal with with regard to hypertension and that kind of thing typically. But if you had a, you know, an athlete that was hypertensive or something like that, you're probably not going to, you're not going to use it in that situation. Um, <clears throat> I think for me, you know, in y'all setting, the biggest question is um, who is administering it um, and, and how, you know, methodologically are you, are you going about it? Um, and then, whether or not you need it at all is probably a reasonable question. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think there's, there's some interesting kind of applications potentially like after an acute type injury, like say for example, an ankle sprain, um, I have a lot of athletic trainer buddies and, and friends, colleagues that um, really like it after an ankle sprain using it as a means of helping to limit some swelling and things like that by getting the limb a bit more active and knocking down some pain. Um, these are just kind of anecdotal reports, of course, nobody's really kind of mm -hmm. undertaken a, a study. Um, but on the, on the safety side, you know, our, the big questions are, um, well, how much pressure do you use? You know, you don't want to use too much pressure. So you need a way to measure the amount of pressure that you're going to use and figure out how do I make this individual to that person, just like you would a load. Um, you have to have a means of, you need to have a means of doing that because just picking a random pressure, it, it may not do anything at all, um, or it could be too much for the individual. Probably the thing in terms of concerns that you guys, I think might run into the most would be, athletes that do not like having their blood pressure taken. Um, they don't like the pressure. That's a relatively <laughs> common thing. And those people likely won't tolerate BFR very well. I've had a couple in clinic type settings and we just kind of chose to, to move on without it, despite, you know, it really maybe being something that they needed. If they can't tolerate the pressure, then um, it's, it's not going to be an appropriate intervention for the person. So I've never had an athlete specifically say, Hey, I don't like my blood pressure taken. That's interesting. Uh, it may be happening, but you know, since we don't take it all that often here in the athletic training facility, then I just might not know about it, but interesting. Yeah. I can't take the full credit for starting this conversation. We have to give a shout out to David Redinger for kind of starting that. And he just kind of got me amped up with uh, a lot of just curious comments. I think with 
what I think comes into BFR, and especially in that secondary setting. But I think going into some of the other indications, you have to be really careful of, um, at least for my literature reviews that I've done and some of the research I've done into, you have to be careful with like clotting disorders, somebody with sickle cell anemia or sickle cell trait. I mean, you're putting a lot of stress and uh, load on that body, especially the, I mean, the purpose is to create an ischemic area to increase metabolic demand. Therefore your body's going to say, Hey, I need to grow. I need to respond to that. And if somebody isn't typically uh, able to have a good clotting response, report from that or maybe they have like uh, diabetes where their body doesn't respond to those kind of stresses i mean you got to be really careful with some of that because their body's not going to react the same way as somebody who doesn't right and so i think those are just some things especially in the secondary setting you'll see a lot is the sickle cell trait and diabetes as well that uh, is going to come up and change those results uh and also could potentially cause some harm i don't think um we understand fully yet of how people with diabetes or sickle cell trait would respond to a blood flow restriction. It just hasn't been studied. It's one of those modalities that's last 10 years. I mean, a lot of great research and systematic reviews, meta-analyses of what it does, improving the benefits. But I think the other thing too, is we have to look at how does the population who isn't within that normative range respond to stuff like this. So just some things that again, from my literature reviews and searches that, as a, especially in the secondary setting, you've got to be careful. Yeah, I would I wouldn't disagree with any of that. Um, certainly, those are our populations where we need to kind of push the pause button and say, mm-hmm. okay, you know, is is this what's our risk reward kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Um, sickle cell, it's one that um, we have like no information whatsoever. We have to really mm-hmm. kind of lean on the the tourniquet literature for that, and it's kind of all over the map. Um, with regard to that. And certainly you have to be mindful of how intense you're exercising those people as well. Um, And so that would be kind of something where generally from a safety perspective and how you introduce this intervention, you would gradually introduce it anyway. Um, You should Mm -hmm. kind of take your time uh, in a, in a clinic type setting, because oftentimes you're dealing with someone that has been in a period of disuse. And so risks for things like rhabdomyolysis and that kind of thing will be elevated. And certainly mm-hmm. intense exercise is a cause of that. And so you just have to be mindful of those things to, to kind of mm-hmm. gradually introduce. But yeah, sickle cell, yeah. actually, it's, it's interesting, you know, you just kind of run across it so rarely, at least in my clinic type setting. I don't know that I've ever actually had a patient that, that had it, but certainly something that you see much more within the athletic realm that you guys mm-hmm. should be mindful of. Um, mm-hmm. And, and um, diabetes, uh, you know, there's a trial going on in Germany. Um, but again, it is something that we don't have information on yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, from that perspective, in terms of just kind of a clinical decision-making tool, if you, if you have someone that, for example, is on a pump that is competing at a high level, they are um, pushing their body relatively hard. So in terms of kind of being able to tolerate the, um, the metabolic stress that we're going to induce, those sorts of things, um, our, our concerns come down a little bit. I can tell you that I have used it in a clinic on people that have type 1 diabetes. Um, in those cases, all of those individuals were on insulin pumps and they were had years under their belt of managing that condition um, and they were very familiar with intense exercise. And so, but that likely is not going to be what you would encounter in, in your setting. I would imagine that if you have a type 1 diabetic, they are relatively new diagnosis um, and 
may not be as responsible with managing that. Um, and so mm -hmm. certainly a situation where you should, you should pump the brakes for sure. So, yeah. Let's go back to the open wounds real quick. I haven't gone through the training. Sophia, my coworker here has gone through the training with uh, smart tools plus. And so the open wounds, is that like any sort of cut or is it like a, like an open ACL surgery wound type thing? Yeah. Good question. Um, we actually like, so when you start talking rehab, um, and you get into like a post-op wound, that kind of thing, um, pushing, pointing back to uh, a reference Devin made for clotting disorders and that sort of thing. That's something that you need to at least kind of, uh, weigh in. If you have a, a person that has like a factor five Leiden or a protein mm -hmm. S deficiency or one of those things, which although rare, um, they are out there. Um, that is a situation where I would say you need to discuss with patient, with family, with physician referral sources before, before mm -hmm. moving ahead, simply because they're, because they have had a recent surgery, so they're going to have some endothelial damage. They're going to have some stasis. Um, those things will amplify their risk, and that coupled with their clotting disorder exponentially amplifies their risk for clot. So that's a situation where you, where you pump the brakes. Um, with regard to post-op, open wound, that kind of thing, that, that early time post-op is a target for us. The, and the reason for that is that your patient is in a situation where every single signal that their muscle is getting is that they don't need it. And muscle responds to that quickly. It's a very plastic tissue. It will atrophy um, substantially in a very short amount of time. You know, when we talk total knee, at least the numbers are you lose 80% of the muscle that you're going to lose in the first two weeks postoperatively. Um, and we wouldn't really expect those numbers to be much different in like an ACL surgery or something like that. So um, early on when we were teaching people how to do this, we our direction to people was don't get this on these folks until that wound is pretty well healed. You know, um, you've got a, a good looking wound and, you know, you're not it's not really got any kind of drainage or anything coming off of it or anything like that. Um that being said, that's problematic from that disuse perspective that, that misses a real kind of important window for us in terms of trying to limit how much muscle this person is going to lose. And so over time, what has happened in, in large part due to all the different colleges and professional teams that are using this is people are getting this on their athletes um, quite early and, and they're finding that it's, it's not problematic. Um, and so we're seeing the less and less concern about putting this on someone very early postoperatively. Um, the way I decision made in clinic was I just monitored the wound. So for example, if someone came in and I just, you know, you know, you guys know, sometimes you look at that wound and you're like, it just doesn't look right. There's something I, I, there's something about the appearance of this wound that I, I don't really care for. Um, and in those situations, I just didn't move forward. And it's hard to really kind of quantify that for people, but um, it's just, I think it's since you get as a clinician. Um, but then from there, what I would do is um, I just monitored, well, did some drainage start to kind of come off that wound as we were doing the BFR? If it did, then I just kind of stopped for the day. If not, then, then we, we went, we went forward. Um, and thus far, in terms of just, I mean, we've trained, you know, over 8,000 people in the U.S. alone over the last five years. 
um, haven't have not received any reports of anyone having a problem with wound healing um, postoperatively if they started kind of early. And I have I have groups out here in LA where their orthopedist is referring to the PT clinic um, and essentially saying, "I need you in there in that first week to get going on this BFR because we want to try to keep some of this muscle around." So, so those types of things are happening. Um, I have much less concern than I used to. Uh, in that regard, but I still think it, it warrants, um, a, you know, some good clinical reasoning, looking at your individual patient and kind of weighing pros and cons and, and deciding, you know, should we, or should we not kind of thing. And say, Kyle, you said something a little bit earlier. I think it was really interesting. It's like weighing that need of, do you actually need this or not? You know, and, mm-hmm. and I think that's the big thing is that you have to look at encouraging the behavior of, is this going to outweigh some of those risks, especially when you have those clinical concerns of open wounds or maybe something you just haven't encountered before uh, yeah. with maybe any other kind of skin condition like psoriasis or irritable uh, skin conditions, again, that could cause a flare up. And then therefore, like, do you lose that efficacy of the device? Because again, it's great. We know it's great, right? The literature says, hey, we get great metabolic demand from this, but Again, at the same time, if the behavior isn't matched with that social aspect that somebody is able to enjoy it, you almost kind of lose that buyout and you don't get what you're looking for and can get probably frustrating, I'm sure, for those who are like, well, why is this not working? Yeah. 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 I think, you know, you're always kind of looking at the person you're about to do this to um, and, you know, and just kind of considering, trying to consider every angle. Um, and, and I say, I say people that don't tell our blood pressure well, cause I've made that mistake, you know, I mean, like mm-hmm. so much of what we say on podcasts like this is like, well, I learned from that screw up, you know? Um, but I, I actually had a, a young girl who was, um, very athletic, really, really tough person. She fought MMA, but she did not tolerate it well at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found out later, um, through her mother that she does not, she hates having her blood pressure taken. Absolutely mm-hmm. hates it. Now, her father neglected to communicate that to me when he told me, oh, she should do BFR. <laughs> so there's that, there's that, you know, dynamic to it as well. But um, yeah, yeah, you certainly have to kind of consider the the person. And um, in y'all setting, you know, I, I could see where this intervention could be beneficial. I also think, you know, by comparison to the setting that I'm accustomed to, y'all might not need it quite as much as I, as I did. All right, so we've gone over a lot of the reasons. And, and so in your opening, you know, you had a lot of really good points about why the methodology, who's doing it, and those kind of things. And I feel like we've we've covered those well, but we're going to kind of dig a little bit further into them. Devin, what are some of the big concerns that you had? So I feel like we've addressed some of those so far, but you mentioned the protocol and how are you going to measure the um, – gene expression protein synthesis whatever it is that's going on there and you know realistically in a high school setting we are not going to do that we're not drawing blood we're not measuring those things so what are some of the big concerns that you have for us and then we can get see if cal can answer yeah so i I think the big thing especially in the secondary school setting is like you have to demonstrate this this effect that it actually works right there's there's so many different modalities and it, it, it i struggle sometimes with the amount of modalities we have out there to use of are these actually beneficial one in the time that I have, but also just in the patient itself. Because if you look at the secondary setting, a lot of these kids are just learning about their bodies, right? Their, their bodies are changing every day. Their personalities maybe are changing a little bit every day. 
And there's so many different things that well, does this top tier modality, right? The top of the pyramid really work. And the big thing we work, uh, at least where we're at and me and my coworker, we just work on focusing on good sleep, good rest, good nutrition, uh, good body movement, things like that, encouraging good behaviors. And then we can supplement uh, those other things. But I think with the first thing I would want to see with BOFAR is how do you just demonstrate that it actually works, right? Like, are you just measuring single uh, rep max output? Or are you measuring protein synthesis, which again is not happening? But again, how do you know that I've actually been able to implement this device and it's actually benefited the patient um, to where maybe I should have just done something else, right? Yeah. So I think in a roundabout way, you're it, at some level, you're kind of asking, how do you decide what load to use, you know, um, with this? Uh, and so for what, what I do, um, because in a rehab type situation, the amount of load someone can lift, it might be, excuse me, let me back up. Um, it might be contraindicated to do like a one rep max test or something like that to really decide like what load do I use. So, so what we would do is we used an RPE scale that we would show people. Um, we'd say as long as, you know, you get like a two or a three on here, um, then we're kind of in the ballpark. And then we use our typical rep set scheme of that 30, 15, 15, 15, 30 second rest interval. Uh, and by the end of it, we need you to be exhausted. We need you to be really, really tired. Um, and, and then from there, that's just becomes an exercise fizz problem. We know that if we repeat that twice a week for about four weeks, we can expect to see some growth in muscle. Uh, we know if we continue on down that road for around eight weeks that we will see increases in strength. Um, <clears throat> but it's not going in terms of adding muscle size, adding muscle strength, that's a slow process that reply mm -hmm. that requires a, no, a number of sets of exercise at a high level of effort for a number of weeks. Um, the thing that we found really beneficial in a clinic type setting that I think you guys might also is the, some of where the research is going now. And that is in the, on the analgesic side of things. So uh, a few papers now have shown that doing this intense exercise intervention with this cuff really seems to be settling people's pain down. And so for you all with things like muscle strain, something like that, that could be huge because if I can get this person's quad or their hamstring to work really, really hard with this very light weight that's not causing them pain across that recent muscle strain. I can settle their pain down, remove some of that sheer, that stress shielding, if you will. Now that allows me to begin to load that person's muscle um, a bit sooner. And so that can be a very, very powerful thing. Um, but yeah, in, ter in terms of like, yeah, we're not going to measure protein synthesis. That's a very kind of complex thing um that i don't think any rehab professional really does um mm -hmm. i mean we can hope that that's something down the road that would be awesome but um I, from, from my perspective i i i guess i just kind of lean on the exercise fizz knowledge that if i can take you and make you very very tired in this window using this load and this pressure i know that i have upregulated those things so yeah, I, you know, I'm really glad you brought up the ischemic uh, or the pain reduction because I, so I just recently just published uh, an article and uh, we we looked at tissue flossing, right? And you look mm -hmm. at some of those effects with tissue flossing. I think sometimes that tissue 
flossing falls under this false um, t- false umbrella of occlusion training, right? Because you really shouldn't be doing tissue mm-hmm. flossing as a way to occlude blood flow. But doing tissue flossing, there is a natural level of occlusion that occurs. And right. one thing they found, in, at least in my systematic review and meta-analysis, that we just don't investigate some of these other pain things. But we look at some of these patient-reported outcomes of, hey, my function's better. I, I just feel better. My my heel isn't hurting as much as, as it was. I did six weeks of PT, and, and I just did two or three sessions of tissue flossing. I just feel better. And if you look at the effects of tissue flossing, you're creating that ischemic area, which, again, is creating almost like a hyper-reset of your body's ability to feel that proprioceptive pain and Whatnot. So that's it. I'm, I'm kind of glad you brought that up because I think that's an interesting piece that almost needs to start moving into the investigation with between that comparison of tissue flossing and occlusion training of hey, where where other pieces are we missing that this is beneficial? Because I mean, tissue flossing is something I use a ton in my practice for mm-hmm. improving range of motion. Um, but again, there's that other side piece of hey, Devin, I actually don't even have pain anymore. Do I need to still be coming in? You know, and yeah. sometimes again, good conversation to have and it's it's interesting to see that that's coming up a little bit more in the research and that you're seeing it with occlusion training. Yeah. I mean, I think it really, you kind of have to ask the question, is it, you know, this compression of the tissue, like say for around a joint, like you might do with a, a flossing type intervention, or, you know, is it more powerful to do this proximal and really mm-hmm. kind of restrict this blood flow at a percentage of your mm-hmm. limb occlusion pressure? Um, mm-hmm. Is that more powerful? How do we how do we dial in those methods? Is is a combination right. of the two right. um, advantageous at some level? Because that's the limitation of like a tissue flossing is how do you truly determine how much compression you've given? Um, mm-hmm. you know, everything is kind of subjective, whether it be on your end, the clinician, or it be on the end of the on the of the recipient of the intervention. So, uh, <laughs> right, that's every time every, every through the entire review, you look at like how much pressure is being being put because which was kind of concerning because some people would lo- use some kind of um, very match bariatric uh, pressure measure where they're doing like 250, 270 millimeters of mercury of pressure. Then some people are like, oh, hey, fifty to seventy percent stretch. Right. And it's like uh, yeah. you're really kind of pushing yourself into that dangerous area that you're reaching maximal occlusion. And then you're asking for a protocol longer than five minutes. I mean, you totally occlude an area for five minutes. You're going to have some things that are going to come up and be concerned about. Right. And when you can't measure that accurately, it gets scary. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you, you know, potentially if you have way too much pressure, that's concerning. Um, I actually I I. I don't have much concern at all about five minutes of full occlusion to a limb. I mean, we surgeons do 45 minutes to two hours of um, much more than full occlusion to a limb in surgery and mm-hmm. people generally do okay with that. Um, but yeah, the, the concern, especially with like flossing is the area of compression, you know, if you really got mm-hmm. that thing tight and it's over a narrow area, that's v- potentially very problematic for things like nerve nerve would be kind mm-hmm. of a major sort of concern because right. that myelin sheath is somewhat sensitive to um, mm-hmm. that compression. And that's the general concern with tourniquet application and surgery as well. So, mm-hmm. um, but, but yeah, you know, I think just dialing in methods, just like we are dialing them in with BFR um, would be, um, and, and even comparing the two interventions, because there are a number mm-hmm. of different clinicians 
that I work with that swear by using BFR to settle pain down, improve range of motion, mm -hmm. using it much like a, a flossing intervention. Um, I mm -hmm. personally, it, it didn't work for me when I, when I did it, when I tried that, but maybe I just picked the wrong person or, you know, didn't, <laughs> maybe I'm not very good at it. I don't know. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's funny cause it's, it, it's, I know it's kind of a little bit off topic of the BFR, but I think it's still very related that you're starting to see that crossover okay. of your outcomes. Right. And, um, uh, for me, it's always worked. Uh, one of my uh, educators from undergrad, I went up and talked a little bit about some of my research and I did it with her and she messaged me the next day and she's like, you know what, uh, I've been dealing with this heel pain for so many years and I, I woke up in significantly more comfortable after just doing one session of tissue flossing. And yeah, it's we just, but again, the literature is kind of scarce on what it is, but it sounds like it's starting to come out a little bit more clear that that occlusion could really maybe help with pain control, which I think at the secondary level is huge, right? We have so many kids, oh, I have this ache and pain and they're just yeah. being introduced to some of that. And maybe we have to start looking into, is that how we help treat with some acute pain with some of these kids with occlusion training? We're talking about BFR and the flossing, right? So we're focusing on the BFR and the adolescent. And so mm -hmm. you mentioned the, what is the goal? Why are we using this? So for the most part, you know, like right now we got like five ACLs. We have uh, an ankle that's been like two weeks and just every time we do any single leg activity, the pain goes, you know, back up to like a five or a six out of 10. And, and, you know, if we do double leg activities, you know, it's down there around a three and that kind of thing. And so what, what are some of the goals in adolescence where we would use the blood flow restriction? And then do any of the concerns that we've expressed so far change in adolescence? The goals are early after an intervention, early after an injury, early after a surgery are to help to reduce pain um, and help to limit muscle atrophy because you, early after an injury or a surgery, your athlete is going to offload that limb um, either because they're forced to, because the physician has braced them, casted them, made them non-weight bearing, what have you, or simply because they have pain in that limb and they have range of motion limitation and they're not able to uh, load it appropriately. Um, <clears throat> so early on, that's kind of our, our, those are our goals. And in order to do that, it looks like it's a combination of some repeated inflations and deflations of the cuff. Um, those things help the cells within the muscle to take on water. And um, we, we, it, we think what's going on there is just kind of manipulating that hydration state of the cell helps it to kind of recognize things as somewhat normal because those things would be happening when we're up walking around, moving around, being active. And so we're just trying to create as normal an environment in that limb as we can. Um, and it looks like just doing that um, in a repeated fashion and quite frequently, um, which is also kind of where, you guys would come into play in that, you know, you might be able to see this athlete somewhat frequently, um, which is a limitation for like a traditional kind of physical therapy clinic. Um, and so that swelling response that we elicit via inflation, deflation of the cuff, and then the addition of exercise um, can be a pretty powerful tool early on. 
Um, from there, you know, we want to kind of quickly get these people as active as we can. But, you know, the cuff allows us to use interventions like pedaling a bike, walking on a treadmill as interventions that do have the ability in a relatively short amount of work to improve things like blood flow into the limb, um, muscle size, muscle strength, and that sort of thing. And then as soon as we can get people more and more active, the nice thing about that is they don't need us as frequently either. Um, so now we can get into this situation where, look, you only need to be here two days a week, three days a week to get enough activity on board so that we're at least kind of moving forward until we get to the point where now we can really push you very hard. We can get closer to the appropriate loading strategy with BFR of like a 20 to 30% of your one rep max. We can really take this individual muscle to the point that it is totally exhausted. Um, and we can really give it a true growth stimulus. That's how, that's how I would envision it. Jeremy is, you know, you're using it to combat atrophy, using it to settle down pain, um, very kind of early on. And then, um, over time, just progressing towards being able to actually load the patient with heavy load because that needs to be, I, I think too often with new kind of shiny tools, what happens is people just use it for everything, you know? Um, and you know, this BFR thing, it doesn't replace lifting heavy. I, I don't, I know pretty much all the people that teach this. I don't know a single one of them that says this replaces heavy lifting. Um, we generally, most of us all say this is, um, a, an intermediate intervention to get us to lifting heavy. Um, there's always nuance that goes into that, but um, that's generally kind of how we think it is best used. All right. A couple of times you've mentioned the RPEs as, as a way to, you know, you want them to, them to feel exhausted, the relative perceived exertion. Um, as, as I'm going through this patient reported outcome measures and those kind of things where we'll say, okay, five out of, you know, what's your pain today? Zero to 10. You know, the first couple of times they're like, I don't know. And so how are you effectively using the RPEs when it's something brand new and they don't know how to rate their, their exhaustion? So talk to me a little bit about what that looks like so that maybe I can replicate it here. I use something called the OmniRes scale. Um, it's a person lifting a weight kind of over their head, doing like a squat type movement, if you will. And you can see through the way the image is drawn, it's getting more and more difficult. So I pick a load that I'm very confident someone can lift and I tell them what task I want them to do. And I show them that and I tell them to give me an estimation of how difficult it is to do that, that movement that I want them to do. And I, I usually kind of specifically say, now I, I don't want to make your pain worse, but I also don't want you to tell me pain when you're giving me this rating. Um, and depending on what they give me, even if they're kind of having a hard time with it, they can do, you know, multiple reps, uh, just give me a ballpark. I don't tell them what number I'm looking for because I don't want to affect them trying to give me the answer that I want. I want to try to get as close as I can. As long as they give me like a two to a three, then that gives me a starting place to begin the intervention. 
Um, and so then once I have that, now I go to that rep set scheme of 30, 15, 15, 15, 30 second rest intervals. And I can use how difficult it is for them to complete that, those reps and sets to help me get a better idea of whether or not the number they gave me was really kind of truly accurate. So for example, if someone tells me, Hey, this is a three and then they get to that last set of 15 and boy, they can barely finish that 75th rep. I'm like, Hey, we were in the ballpark. This person did a great job of rating that exercise for me. If they get to that last set of 15 and I can tell, man, they got way more in the tank. Now I know the next time the load really kind of needs to go up because, you know, whatever rating this person gave me, um, it just didn't really fit into this kind of window that I want it to fit in. And it's, of course, conversely, if they just really are smoked after a short amount of time, then I probably need to bring either the load down or maybe the pressure needs to come down. Um, but generally, we try to kind of dial in that pressure and, and manipulate the load from there, if you will. So I use it, you know, as a way to get started. And then I use the effort that this person is having to put port put forth with the exercise to help me kind of fine tune it after that. I think I'd mentioned before Ben Weatherford presented the BFR at Trinity university and I did the 75 rep, but they did both arms and we did push pushups. Um, so, Sounds awful. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, he was like, all right, so you think you're tough or something like that. I was like, well, I can, I'll yeah. do whatever, you know, because that's, that's how <laughs> I learn is just by doing it by, you know, if I'm yeah. building something, I have to screw it up four times before I can figure it out. Um, right. And so I'm just thinking if I asked one of my student athletes that's healthy to do 30 body weight squats right now, mm-hmm. like they're, they're probably going to feel like kind of gassed after that. And then you just give them 30 seconds. Um, it, it just seems like a lot to me to ask anybody to do healthy, much less somebody in pain. I think that the big thing from that too, is like, it's not like we shouldn't be that judge of how important that pain is. Right. So we look at the, the patient centered approach of like, Hey, somebody's saying it pains 10 out of 10. That's probably the worst pain that they've experienced. Now that 10 out of 10 might be different how you experience or how you interpret that pain. But I feel like that's almost the same thing with the exertion, right? So if somebody says, Hey, this is really exerting me. Hey, you almost kind of got to go with it because if, if you go too far, then you are potentially like, again, pushing beyond what their body is physically able to be ready for. Especially, I think it's more so in the secondary setting where these kids are just learning exertion and just learning what their body is, what pain is. Um, because Again, like you, I've seen kids roll their ankle. How oh, my pain's like ten out of ten, and I've seen kids. I mean, I don't know, one out of ten, but their swelling's like four centimeters. Dorsiflexion's less than ninety, and it's like, what do you mean? You're, it, it's all relative, right? Relative perceived exertion, pain is a relative experience that just helps us say, hey, can I continue to push? Oh, hey, your pain's going up. All right, I need to back you down. Or hey, your exertion's going up. I need to slow this down. Oh, your exertion's too low. I need to go forward. I think that's more so. Again, I think in the secondary setting. If you're going to use this, you have to just use what what the patient in front of you is telling you and listening to them as a person because they're saying their exertion's low and you're saying, oh, no, you're just dogging it. I think you're putting yourself in a bad situation to bad bad buy-in and probably bad outcomes after it. Yeah, I I mean, I think Devin and and Jeremy – 
my goal with an initial BFR intervention is for the person I'm using it on to be just sort of mesmerized by it. I want them to kind of go, wow, that was way harder than I thought it was going to be. And so in many ways, what that means is I am really undershooting the load that I'm going to give them, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, for example, things like a push-up or a bodyweight squat, the problem that I have with those interventions is they're not specific. I haven't actually measured, well, how much load can you lift with a push-up, you know, or how much load can you squat? Um, and if you are talking about someone with an injury, um, the injuries are typically unilateral, even if they're bilateral, they're typically not exactly the same bilateral. And so, um, what we're doing side to side really kind of comes into play, uh, at that level. So I am trying to, even with that RPE scale, um, I, I use the two to three because what I found from doing this is that people usually could complete the number of reps that I wanted them to complete. And if they could, um, they could feel a bunch of fatigue in their muscle. And that made them go, that's crazy. How does that even work? You know, and as soon as you get them to do that and they get interested in the intervention, you've got the buy-in that you want. Now you can start kind of telling them, okay, now this is the thing. I know today this was really tough for you. Um, but you really could have done more than 75 reps. You know, we stopped at 75 because that's just where we stopped. But um, we want to try to keep kind of pushing the envelope because in order to get muscle to change, we have to push it very hard. And that's true for the adolescent. That's true for the 95-year-old. You know, muscle is stupid. It only does what you tell it to do. Um, and we have to tell it to do something with our activity. So. The next thing that I have is what procedures or protocols do you feel we have to have in place before doing this? And again, we kind of mentioned those in the opening part where we're talking about, you know, we got to ask these questions, but that's the, the kind of the big thing there that I want to make sure we get. And so Devin, if you got other questions, you can work them in as well. But we, if we're going to start implementing this, what are, what are the key things that we have to have to do this in the secondary setting? I would say um, one of the keys is you have to measure what pressure you're going to use. And you, so you have to be able to determine that. So whatever you're using needs to be able to create full limb occlusion and you need to be able to put a number on that. And then you need to prescribe pressure based off of that number. Um, if you cannot determine what full limb occlusion is, then um, you have no no decision making tool. Um, there there are a number of ways people are trying to determine what limb occlusion is. Um, thus far, you know the the gold standards are uh, really like a handheld Doppler or an automated system. Um, you know, and I think the trick there with some of the devices in the space is has this company substantiated that this device does in fact do what they're telling me it does, you know, um, that's kind of where things get a little bit 
tricky because this is a hot market and there are companies just rushing devices to market and they haven't really substantiated that this does in fact do this thing. Um, and so that gets a little bit more down the road of device stuff. But on your end, um, you need to be able to measure that number and make a decision based on that. From there, you need to document what number you got when you measured full occlusion. And then you need to write down what pressure you used for the intervention. Um, and then the last thing that we really kind of recommend people document is how long the cuff was inflated for. And the reason we do that is that's what surgeons document. Surgeons have been applying tourniquets to limbs for decades. Um, they have things that they are required to document. And so as medical professionals, we should also be following that criteria. Um, that is the best way that you can show as a clinician that you have followed best guidelines, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, documenting what load you used, obviously, and like maybe where that falls on an RPE scale or a 1RM scale or something like that also is wise because now you can show, look, I didn't just grab some weight out of thin air because you could miss really, you could miss bad with that. Um, um, and, and that helps you kind of support your decision making in a clinic setting. From there, in you guys' setting, I think the initial several interventions should be with you, the athletic trainer. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not something that I would pass off to a student helper, at least not initially. You know, Now, if I had an athlete that I'd been working with and I had a student you know, helper that has been around a while, has done this intervention, is responsible. I've made all the decisions regarding pressure, this and that, you know, I, that's where I might be kind of like, okay, you know, today I'm fine with you doing it with this person. Here's what you need to use. If there's anything that pops up along the way, you come get me kind of thing. Um, that's, that's, and, and I think if you do those things, then you've really kind of checked the vast majority of the boxes you need to check. I think, I think the other thing to add on to that too, which I think sometimes always gets forgotten, even with our other modalities, like I asked them in cupping, I mean, you got to make sure these kids are hydrated. You got to make sure they're eating and sleeping the right way. And it's yeah. a big emphasis in my practice, but if you just have these kids just showing up like right after practice or if they're not hydrating the right way, I mean, I've, I mean, I've even heard people have passed out doing this. Stuff. So you got to be really careful. I think doing that. It's a great modality, does great things, but I think again, even passing off to a helper, you're asking for trouble, whether it's an experienced athlete or not. Um, I think even almost I'd be more concerned with that experienced athlete that they're going to push themselves. They are self-motivated and driven that they might push themselves beyond that limit of, hey, I need to breathe for a second. So I think, again, educating a KU, before you come today, you need to make sure you're hydrated. You need to make sure you ate lunch because that's another issue too. I mean, um, you might be in an area where maybe some, some of these kids aren't eating lunch. They, maybe they can't afford it. So I, th I think there's – a lot of beneficial behaviors that have to be established before this modality is saying, Hey, this is going to be the best option for you right now. Um, because again, you don't want to, you don't want any adverse effects from something that we know is going to do a great job of getting strength and hypertrophy and good metabolic demand uh, to be thrown away with something as silly as 
not getting seven to eight hours of sleep or drinking enough water throughout the day. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, this is when it is prescribed in a way that's intended to cause change in muscle. It's intense exercise, and so you do, you do want to make sure that people have some kind of nutrition on board and they are hydrated. Yeah, I, w I would, I would totally agree with that. Yeah, and so again, I, I think you know this is not something where I'm passing off um, to a student trainer of some sort without me even checking in that day you know mm -hmm. and so for example myself as i would use it in clinic you know we had support staff but the first 30 minutes of the day was with me mm -hmm. you know so i've gone through all this stuff i've kind of checked my boxes whatever i feel comfortable with them doing this my people are trained and i'm around um and here's what you're just basically kind of carrying out some tasks so uh, yeah agree with all that. So Kyle, I actually have a question with some of these policies and procedures. So as you're going through and it, maybe you're working in a multi-clinician setting, um, what's the variability of that you've seen with some of this is, or is one clinician like, Hey, really effective is like there, there is skill component that has to come with this, that, Hey, you should reach this level of competency before you actually start working with somebody. Or is this something, Hey, have your training and, and you're going to be good to go. Cause I would say like, maybe I'm really good at documenting the daily occlusion and something like that, but somebody might read that and it changes. And what's that like inter-rater reliability between the uses of the modality? So are you asking in terms of this individual clinician's ability to measure that pressure or are you so, just talking about the actual kind of intervention itself when they're going through the exercises and that kind of thing? So have you seen that like one clinician has just like my, my concern, I guess where this comes from is like, Hey, I, maybe I'm really invested into this, but Hey, I'm not working with this patient every day because we're create, we're trying to create this need of independence that you don't need to rely on one clinician. But again, mm -hmm. I think maybe a PT clinic, this is a lot more applicable where you're having, maybe you're working with a different PT every other day or something like that. Um, one PT does the occlusion one day, but it's on their protocol that, Hey, they're coming back in next week, but I'm not going to be here that day. Is there a variability of how that, how effective that modality was between clinicians? Uh, yes, I would say, yeah, there, there's definitely going to be a difference in experience, um, visit to visit uh, if you are with a different clinician um some of it is real some of it is perceived um mm -hmm. you know and so i i worry less about the perceived unless the clinician is just right. you know lipstick um people are just going to perceive <laughs> different things and so some of that we have to kind of we always should pay attention to it but we have to kind of go okay well you know this is just kind of a personality right. thing um, there are definitely, uh, there's definitely a comfort level that comes with, uh, understanding this intervention better and better, uh, and with the experience of applying it. So someone that's working with a PT who is relatively new to this is still kind of nervous about it. Then that patient ends up on my schedule, um, and I am working with them and I very quickly go, 
this load is way too light. We're going to, we're going to rank, we're going to crank it up a little bit. You need to work a bit harder. Uh, the inner, the experience can definitely, definitely change. And, and I have personally had that experience where I have passed off, uh, a patient because like I was going to be out of town. Um, and the, the PT working with them just, you know, didn't quite feel comfortable pushing the patient hard enough uh, to, to where they really needed to, to, to push them. So, um, so what that results in sometimes is, you know, they end up lifting maybe a load that's just a little too light for an extra visit or two until that person ends up back on my schedule or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that's going to be true with just about any intervention that, that mm-hmm. you have. Uh, I think that's where in terms of you kind of alluded to the competence level um, there, that's kind of why we have our course is because you may know about something, but um, you should be competent in delivering that intervention before you use it on a patient. In my opinion, I think that's incumbent upon us as professionals and too often uh, that sort of thing, I think gets overlooked you know, someone picks up a paper and they go, oh, okay, I know how to do it now. I'm like, well, that's not really how this works, you know. Right. There's lots of nuance that goes that goes into this. Um, if that's how it worked, I wouldn't get email questions every single day about can I do this and can I do that, you know. Right. Uh, so, yeah, and I think, unfortunately, that falls on the individual clinician in many ways, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah. And like, for example, in California, uh, the, our physical therapy board, it has a, they have a whole page um, dedicated to uh, comp, basically competence. They have like two kind of full, very legally sounding paragraphs on, you know, competence. And should you be doing this as a clinician? Are you competent, if you will? So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I th- yeah, I think that's the the good point where again, where as I'm again, I've done a lot of the literature review and searching, but again, the next step is finding that piece that you have to demonstrate your competence before you, because it could get dangerous, right? If you don't know what you're doing, I mean, you can only re- you can read so many papers until you actually sit down and do it yourself. Because the next thing I think of that comes off is it off of this is where where do you see that this translation to actual practice? There's a ton of times you can read literature and. Again, be as paper smart as you as you want to be, but at the same time, it doesn't always translate to clinical practice. Where where do you start reviewing and doing some kind of quality improvement or practice based assessment that you're saying, hey, I'm doing it right, or hey, I'm not doing a good job. I need to change what I'm doing so that I can be more effective. How are you doing that, or where would you recommend a clinician starts to do that? Uh, that's a tough one, you know, because I think it's something that as rehab clinicians, we're pretty bad at in general. Um, yep. So I can tell you what I did. Um, I, for one, when it comes to on the fly, trying to decide, have I done enough with this person? If my patient was able to complete that full kind of rep set scheme two times in a row, uh, to me, that indicated I need to increase the weight mm-hmm. because I might not be pushing them hard enough. 
And so I have kind of a within session way of trying to figure out have I, am I pushing them hard enough? Um, Cause you have to push muscle hard to get it to change. Then from there, more on the long-term side of things, I'm observing different things like how is this person moving or, you know, am I seeing them move better? Are they, are they telling me that they were really sore the next day? Are they telling me that they felt better the next day? What is their report regarding the, the intervention? And then further down the line, I actually will take girth measurements. So first time someone comes in, I have, I'm very detailed in where I take the measurement and how I go about doing it. Because I think generally girth measurements are kind of hard to reproduce. Um, even though I know the research doesn't say that, I just know from my own experience, I feel like I'm one of the worst people at it. And so I just kind of worked <laughs> at it. Um, I always tell people when they take my class, I'm like, look, I guarantee you, you're better at this than I am. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I, I started doing that. And one of the things that I found was that within a month, I should start seeing some increase in this person's muscle size. And so if yeah. I did not see that, it told me a couple things, either it made me look and see had this person been in enough. So for example, had they been in twice a week for the last four weeks, um, had we been pushing them hard enough throughout that, that time frame? Uh, and then if we had not hit either of those, we either had a conversation with the patient about, Hey, look, you just really haven't been in here enough. We need to make sure you're in here more. Um, or I had a conversation with the mirror, uh, where I told myself, you need to push this person harder. You're not pushing them hard enough. And, and, and that's your job. So you're not doing your job. Um, mm -hmm. then we also, because the other kind of missing component sometimes in all of this is making sure this person's nutrition is up to par. Mm -hmm. um, if they're not getting in uh, an adequate amount of protein, uh, there's nothing to build that muscle with. You have to ingest right. that, you know, yeah. that, there's, there's no way around that, you know, no matter what sort of food allergies you have or opinions you have on foods you should or should not eat, uh, you have to have enough protein on board in order to put muscle on. And so we would, you know, that's a conversation that I typically had with patients very early on. Um, but also one that we would revisit if I was not seeing the adaptations that, that I wanted to see. So mm -hmm. looking at it from a few, a, a number of, of different angles, um, whether it be within session to maybe within week to over the course of, you know, an, an intervention. Mm -hmm. Good stuff. Nice. So Owen Eisminger is quoting you there. Devin, he said, I love this quote. You can be paper smart, but not transition to clinical practice. So good little uh, tidbit to take away there. All right. It is kind of about that time that we would normally wrap up. Um, I'm sure we could continue talking about how and when and why to apply this. But I think there, there's some really good uh, starting points here. Obviously, if you're going to do BFR, know why you're going to do it. Make sure you take the training practice on yourself a lot, maybe practice on, you know, your spouse, significant other, or something like that, you know, get that comfort, that confidence, understand why. And then uh, Kyle listed right here towards the end of the podcast, make sure you measure the LOC. You want to document the number of full occlusion, document the pressure for each session, document the length of time the cuff was on, document the load 
used. And then the interventions should be supervised by the AT. I know Kyle mentioned possibly having a student aide do it in the high school setting. I don't think I would have a student aide doing it. Maybe if you're in the college setting, you know, have one of the student athletic trainers if they're still doing that route, um, doing it there. But I personally don't think I would do that here. And again, you have to make your choice and go from there. Um, any other one-liners, closing thoughts, things we really need to take home before we wrap it up, guys? I don't know. I mean, I feel like I should throw in a go Sam Rayburn Texans or something just to give you a little <laughs> So Kyle actually graduated from Sam Rayburn, which is the rival of the high school I work at. So I actually graduated yeah. from Doby. So I went to school in this oh, district and so did, Kyle, so did Kyle, but I currently yeah. work at Kyle's high school uh, alma mater uh, rival. So. That's too funny. You were Adobe. For, we we had that conversation, didn't we? Mm-hmm, for, 1999. Were, I think that's when you were talking about uh, John Cheshik and uh, Nance and stuff like that, right? Shane Nance. Yeah, yeah, old buddies of mine from back in the day. Yep. Yep. So Shane Nance actually pitched, I think, for Arizona and a couple other teams, uh, MLB. Yeah. So pretty cool yep. little circle. David Redinger, as you mentioned there, Kyle has said he's got FOMO for missing out. He's, he's glad you're doing this. Tanya Watson saying thanks for the great conversation. And then Owen again saying thanks. Appreciate all of you taking your time. All right. Kyle has his email, Instagram, and Twitter right here. So Kyle Kimbrell on Instagram or Kyle Kimbrell1 on Twitter. Or if you search for Astro's Elbow, he's got a picture, a picture of it like it looks like a bulldog. Yeah, um, a dog. Yeah. On Twitter. And so yeah. that's always a good one there. He's working in, you said working in LA with the yeah, I, mean, I bet that was fun this year. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, uh, yeah, I have good friends within the Dodgers organization. So I've, I've, I've heard it a lot <laughs> over, the, over the last year and rightfully so. So his email is in the show notes, but it's Kyle K Y L E at O R S dot I O. So if you want to get a hold of Kyle, you can find him one of those ways. Uh, and Devin? You guys who's get it, reach out to me on Twitter with anything. Uh, again, just kind of getting in, doving into this and practice-based research with this, hopefully in the future. So reach out at Keeler underscore Devin. And uh, yeah, look forward to hearing from more from you guys. It was a great conversation. All right. And so just recently, the conversations, you know, and I was tagging Kyle and Devin. So it's K-I-E-L-U-R underscore D-E-V-I-N, Keeler underscore Devin, or again, you can look at the show notes. Again, this is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash BFR in adolescence. Sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash BFR in adolescence. Um, if you don't have somewhere where you're going to be buying your BFR from, then you may check out Myotech. You can use the code VSMB. You can save a little bit if you're buying it personally. Usually if you're doing a bid list, then... Um, it's going to be different anyway, so send Paul and the guys there at Myotech your bid. Let them check it out. For Jeremy, Kyle, Devin, and the Sports Medicine Broadcast, that is a wrap. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Jeremy.